If you have a Bible handy as you listen to this sermon, I would encourage you to have it open at the passage that we just read, Exodus 14. I'll be referring to different verses in the chapter in the course of this sermon. Dear people of God, there are many places in the Bible where the people of God are encouraged to stand firm. For example, in 2 Chronicles 20, we find the story of King Jehoshaphat facing the armies of Moab and Ammon when the Lord says to him and his armed forces, take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Another example is found in the prophet Isaiah where we read the memorable words, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. A third example is found in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. This is just a small sampling of the many places in the Bible where believers are exhorted to stand firm. In Exodus 14, the chapter which we just read, there is also an exhortation to God's people to stand firm. It is found in verse 13, where Moses says to the Israelites, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. In this case, however, the command to stand firm is followed two verses later by a command which seems to be very different. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. We are tempted to ask, which is it, Lord? Do you want us to stand firm or to move on? But the point is that the Israelites are to do both, to stand firm and to move on. Let's take some time to reflect on this. Note that this odd double imperative comes at a time of crisis, when the people feared for their lives. In fact, it comes at a pivotal point in the overall biblical meta-narrative. It is found in the middle of a story that most of us have known since childhood and which teaches us in a central and paradigmatic way a great deal about who God is and about who we are in relation to him. Let me briefly recap the story in biblical context and then focus on the devil command found in these two verses, 13 and 15. In the centuries after Joseph, the Israelites in Egypt had grown in numbers and had been enslaved. The book of Exodus starts with the story of Moses, raised as a prince in Egypt, but who ended up a shepherd in Midian. Then God met him at the burning bush and commissioned him to lead his people out of Egyptian oppression. Reluctantly, Moses agreed, and he and his brother Aaron confronted the Egyptian pharaoh with a ringing challenge, let my people go. But Pharaoh refused. You know how the story went after that. 
Moses was enabled by God to bring on Egypt a whole series of plagues in order to force Pharaoh to let God's people go. Time after time, Pharaoh would agree only to change his mind again as soon as God, at Moses' request, removed the latest plague. Over and over again, we hear the refrain that Pharaoh hardened his heart or that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was as though Pharaoh said in his heart, I'll be damned if I let these troublesome Jews go. So it went on through the first nine plagues. Then finally, after the terrible 10th plague, in which the firstborn male of every family and of every animal in Egypt, with the notable exception of the Jews, was killed, Pharaoh finally relented and let the Israelites depart. At this point, the Egyptians were so anxious to have them leave that they they showered the departing Israelites with gifts of silver and gold to hurry them on their way. And at last, Moses led the people away from the country of their enslavement in the direction of the Promised Land. But of course, it was not really Moses who was leading the people out of slavery to the land that had been promised to Abraham long ago. It was really God himself. That is why chapter 13 of Exodus, the one just before the chapter we read, tells us about the remarkable provision which the Lord made for personally guiding them through the desert. This is what it says in that previous chapter, Exodus 13, 20 to 22. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God himself, in that mysterious pillar which turned from cloud in the daytime to fire at night, went ahead of them in the journey. Whenever he moved, the people moved. Whenever he stopped, the people stopped. But now, at the beginning of chapter 14, the chapter we read together, a very strange thing happens. Rather than lead the people forward in the direction of the promised land, right, that's where they were headed, the Lord tells them to turn back. Listen again to Exodus 14, verses 1 to 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now, although we don't know the exact location of the place names here mentioned, it is clear that the Lord is telling the people to retrace their steps and to position themselves in a very specific geographical location next to the sea. Why does he engage in this strange maneuver? It turns out that God is deliberately setting a trap for Pharaoh, luring him and his military might to come after the Israelites 
so that he, the Lord, can utterly destroy the Egyptian military machine. This is how the narrative continues in verses three and four. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. Another translation of the first sentence of this verse reads as follows. Then Pharaoh will think of the Israelites in the country they have walked into a trap. The wilderness blocks their way. In other words, by putting the Israelites in a military position from which there can be no apparent escape, God deliberately provokes Pharaoh to harden his heart one more time and to pursue the Israelites in order to re-enslave them. <coughs> and the divine strategy works. Pharaoh does conclude that the Israelites are now in a trap. If he pursues them, they will be hemmed, hemmed, hemmed in on both sides by the desert with the sea before them and the Egyptians behind them. They will have nowhere to go. He hardens his heart and rushes his 600 chariots and army to the place where the Israelites have foolishly, it seems, painted themselves into a corner. It is at this point that we get the words of our text. The Israelites see the approaching Egyptian army and realize that from a military point of view, they are sitting ducks. There is no way out. They are trapped. What is their reaction? They are terrified. They cry out to God and they blame Moses. It's at that point that Moses says, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Let's pause the narrative a moment at this point and reflect on these remarkable words. Do not be afraid, stand firm. It has been said that the words do not be afraid occur 365 times in the Bible. I'm not sure if this is exactly right and that therefore there would be one do not be afraid for every day of the year, but it is certainly true that this command occurs very often in scripture and that we need to be reminded of it in every day. Not only does it occur frequently, but it is always addressed to people who are in fact afraid, just as in this case. So it's not a question of saying, just in general in the future, don't be afraid. But the Lord says, I know you're afraid now, don't be. The Israelites here were terrified. They were panic struck. Furthermore, the command not to be afraid is almost utter, always uttered by God or his representative. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, for I bring you good tidings. In our fear, God wants to reassure us, to remind us that he cares for us and is himself in control of the situation. 
Then Moses goes on to say to the Israelites, stand firm. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that the Israelites should turn around to face the Egyptians, position themselves in a military formation and prepare to stand their ground against the expected onslaught? No, it is very clear from the narrative that this is not what he means. In the next breath, Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Only to be still, not exactly a fighting posture. What then does Moses mean when he says that the Israelites in a crisis situation with their lives at stake should stand firm? What does God mean when he tells us here and in so many other parts of scripture to stand firm? He means be unshaken in your faith Stand in the assurance of a trustworthy and all-powerful God. Take your stand on the promises of God. In a word, exercise your faith. Practice trusting God. We can stand firm because God stands firm. Moses' command to the Israelites and over their heads to us in similar circumstances is paradoxical. We must stand firm, actively do something, take some initiative to to take us out of our paralyzing fear. There is an appeal to us as responsible agents who must not simply be overwhelmed by our terror. And yet, what we must do is to let someone else do the action. Someone else take the initiative. What we must do is to let go. Let God be God. Now, I suspect I'm talking to an audience of largely mature Christians. I think you know what I am talking about. The exercise of faith, of childlike trust in God, is in a sense to leave things in God's hands, to give it over to him. Even in a situation of mortal danger, or rather, especially in a situation of mortal danger. But let's unpause the narrative and return to our story. What happens next? This is what the next text tells us. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. The Israelites are to stand firm in their faith but at the same time, they are to move forward in their journey. In this case, straight toward the sea. The Egyptians are behind them. The desert is hemming them in on either side and only an impassable sea lies before them. Yet they are to move forward. This is a test of their faith. Will they trust that God knows what he is doing and that they can entrust themselves entirely to his safekeeping. This is surely a very difficult test of faith, to trust God in the face, in the teeth of the evidence, to stand firm in their faith when everything else seems hopeless. But notice that God also gives two powerful helps to their faith. 
so that he is not asking the impossible. The first help is that he announces in advance what he is going to do. This is what he says to Moses at this point, verses 16 to 17. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. It still requires great faith and trust on the part of the Israelites to move forward on their journey. But now at least they know what God has in mind, what his strategy is. He is going to lure the Egyptian forces into the sea so that he can gain the glory of a great military victory. The second help which God gives to the faith of his people is perhaps even more remarkable. He puts himself in the person of the angel of the Lord between his people and their enemy. And similarly, he moves the pillar of cloud which had been in front of them to a position behind them so that the Lord is, as it, as it were, visibly present between the Israelites and the pursuing Egyptians. So the situation had been that the pillar was in front of the Israelites. Now the Lord is saying, the pillar is going to come behind you now and separate you from the pursuing Egyptians. Look at verses 19 to 20. Then the angel of the God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt, Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. This dramatic manifestation of God's presence on their behalf must have been a very powerful reassurance to the Israelites as they marched forward toward the sea. Not only did they have God's promise that the waters would part, but the miraculous pillar of cloud and fire gave visible proof that the Lord was fighting on their side, separating them from their enemy. With the help of these two powerful aids, the Lord's promise and the movement of the pillar, the Israelites did stand firm in their faith and they did move forward into the path through the sea which the Lord had provided. We know the rest of the story, how the Egyptians were lured into following the Israelites through the sea and how God orchestrated the wind and weather in such a way that the entire Egyptian army was buried in water as soon as the Israelites had safely crossed to the other side. God gained a great victory on behalf of his people. Now, this story of the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, is one of the best known in the Bible. Children know it from their earliest years. Movies have been made about it. A famous song celebrating it occurs in the next chapter, Exodus 15. And no wonder, this story 
is one of the central episodes in the entire grand narrative of the Bible. The Exodus, which comes to a climax in this dramatic depiction of God's power on behalf of his people, becomes a central symbol throughout the rest of the Bible of the salvation which God works for his people. It is therefore especially significant that at the very heart of this pivotal episode of the biblical story, we hear the call to God's people to stand firm and to move on, even in the midst of a crisis, especially in the midst of a crisis. Each of us can apply the message of this story to ourselves, and we can also apply it collectively to this congregation. Thankfully, we are not now in a crisis situation like that of the Israelites in Exodus 14, nor are we in imminent danger of losing our lives, although that is not entirely true. We are in the midst of a pandemic, and many of us know people who have contracted the virus or have even died from it. And certainly many of us face our own crises in other various dimensions of our lives. Sickness and death are a normal part of life in our earthly pilgrimage until Christ returns. Whatever challenges we face, the message of this text is the same for us all. Stand firm in the faith and move on in your pilgrimage, trusting in the Lord's promise and power. He may not give deliverance in the same dramatic way as he did for the Israelites at the Red Sea, although we should not discount the reality of great miracles of, of deliverance happening today as well, but he does give assurance of ultimate safety and deliverance, and he opens doors into a hopeful future, even through death itself. Let us remind ourselves of these central realities of our faith, not only during this time of coronavirus restrictions, but throughout our earthly lives, where dangers beset us on every side. To that, let all God's people say, Amen. Shall we pray? Lord God, we are grateful to be reminded of the story which many of us have known and resonated with since the days of our childhood. Thank you for the great act of deliverance which you gave to Moses and the people of Israel when, he, when you rescued them from the Egyptians and carried them miraculously through the Red Sea. And thank you how that story resonates powerfully throughout the scriptures and that even our salvation in Jesus Christ is often compared to that deliverance. Help us as Christians who serve that Lord to stand firm in our faith and to move forward even when it seems that death is staring us in the face. Thank you for our faith in Christ. Be with us in Christ's name. Amen.